0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm just going to read verses 9 through 12 to start with, and then we'll pick up once we get these verses unpacked. Paul says to them, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to, to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is a very important section of Scripture, so I didn't want to skip over it too quickly before we get into the next verses, which I know we've all been looking forward to, verses 13-18, through which deal with the rapture of the church. We're going to get to that later on tonight and next time we gather together. We won't meet next week because of Thanksgiving, but then when we gather together at the the end of November, We'll continue and pick up with the study of the rapture. But for tonight, as we get started here, let's look closely at what Paul says. He, he said that he had already looked how they had been loving each other. They'd already done this. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then now in verse 9, he says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So what we're going to do is we're going to answer a couple of questions. How had they already been doing it? How had they been loving each other? And How had they been taught by God to do it? And so, as we saw last time we were together, he keeps saying, everything that you're doing, you're doing awesome. Let's see it increase. Let's see it increase. And we looked last week at the fact that it's not us who is actually doing more work. It's actually learning to trust in the Lord more and Him doing it through us as we get to know Him more. But we're going to deal with these two questions. How had they already been doing it? And how had they been taught by God to do it? We're going to answer the second question first. All right. As we said last week, it is God who will move us to live out in, and in us what he wants from us. So go back with me to Philippians 2, verse 13. Let me give you a couple of scriptures just to kind of remind you of where we were last week, kind of refresh you. We're going to all we all need to be taught by God the things that He has for us. So Philippians two thirteen, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Now, before I go any further into any scriptures, I want to show you something that God opened my eyes to today as I'm spending a little time with him. Uh, I, I'm reading a little devotional book written by a wonderful preacher named Vance Havner, And he talked about the difference between believing God can and believing God will. There's a big difference. A lot of Christians believe God can do things, but they don't believe he will. I could ask you, do you believe God can work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure? And hopefully most of you would say, yeah, I believe God can do that. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe he will? Do you believe God will work in you both to give you the desire and to do what he wants? That's the difference between knowing truth and faith. Real faith has action. You can believe that an airplane will get up and fly to the sky. It's another thing to get on it. And a lot of people know the truth of God's promises, but they don't believe that He will in their life. And I want to challenge you, as we look at these scriptures about God teaching us and doing His work in us and through us, move from believing that He can to believing that He will. All right. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God And to the steadfastness of Christ. Again, who's doing the work? The Lord. The Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Do you believe that he can? Yeah, but do you believe that he will? Do you believe that he will? And that's the big difference. All right. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let me read these verses to you again. This is very important. He says, I'm I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, remember the indwelling Holy Spirit that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, before we go any further, that doesn't mean that we don't need teachers and preachers and all. The Bible describes the fact that God has gifted the church with those gifts and those offices. And that's a necessary thing for God's design right now. But it's not a totally necessary thing in the fact that individually, Each one of us who have the Holy Spirit within us can hear from God for ourselves as he can teach us the word of God. I'm going to show you verses that deal with that, but I want you to let this sink in. There's a big difference between believing he can and believing he will. And we need to move from the can to the will. But he goes on and he says, but his anointing teaches you about what? Everything. And is what? true and no lie is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him so go back with me to John 14 to when Jesus was teaching about the coming and dwelling spirit of God in John chapter 14 Jesus made a couple of statements to them that are very powerful in John chapter 14 we're going to start in verse 15 Jesus says if you love me you will keep my commandments and I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live in that day. You'll know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, of course, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you what? All things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here Jesus said, look, right now I'm with you. And he later on in chapter 16 says it's good for you that I'm going away because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit can come. And he says but when the Holy Spirit who's been with you is going to be in you and you're going to realize I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. And he says, we're going to make our home with you. We're going to manifest ourselves to you. And the Holy Spirit that's going to come and dwell you is going to teach you all things. And he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. So what is our responsibility? To put in by reading, studying, praying over, Feeding on, meditating on the word of God. If if memorization helps you, great. But don't think that that's how it has to be. Because honestly, some people don't memorize real good. And it messes them up because they get all freaked out about, well, I'm not really good at memorizing. He didn't say you had to memorize. I challenge you to show me anywhere where the Bible says memorize it. Bible says study it, read it, treasure it, meditate on it, feed on it. Put it in. However you put it in, put it in. And the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance as you're wrestling with something, as you're seeking wisdom. That's why in James chapter one, verse five, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives it generously to all without finding fault. I got no problem when people come and say, Jim, I got a Bible question. I got I got no problem with that. I do have a problem, though, if I'm the only person or only preachers are the only person you ask. If you don't actually spend time with the word of God. Allowing him to show you from his word what it is that he wants you to see. Well, Jim, <laughs> I struggle with that. Now, you know why? Because you probably believe that he can. But you don't believe that he will. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference between believing God is able and that God will actually do it in your life. Go over to chapter 16 of John. Look at verses 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, Jesus is saying to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For, wait a minute, he'll guide us into what? All the truth. truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he'll glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine. And declare it to you. Now, Jim, okay, but what if one Christian hears one thing from God and another Christian hears another thing from God? Well, I don't have time to chase that, but let me just say this much. If you really believe that God will lead us into all the truth, that means that you're gonna leave that to Him to be the one who gets your brother and sister or you to where we need to be. Because when we feel like God's shown me and you hear something different and I feel like it's my job to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. I actually don't believe that God's able to get you where he wants you to be and to lead you to all the truth. I think that I have to get you to where I am. Folks, hopefully you'll humble yourself and just say, you know what? I believe the same God that's going to get me to full understanding as I grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Jesus Christ we'll also get them there as well. As we've already seen, even the Apostle Paul said, if in something in Philippians chapter 3, he talked about in verses 12 and following, straining toward what's ahead, forgetting what's behind, he said, and everyone that's mature will think this way, but if in anything you think otherwise, the Lord will make that known to you. Isn't that interesting? He could have pulled the Apostle card and said, I'm an Apostle, God speaks through me, what I say can become Scripture, and he didn't. Because he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The big difference between believing he can and believing he will. And So, folks, I say there are going to be times that we may not fully agree on some things in the Scriptures. We have to say, all right, Lord, I want to make sure I'm lined up with your truth. And may I believe that you'll correct me if I'm in the wrong and that you'll correct them if they're in the wrong. And may that not be my responsibility. So, well, I think we just... Going to look at that in a little bit about live quietly and mind your own affairs. I think we saw that in our verses for tonight, but I get ahead. So they had already been taught by God how to love one another. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was within them and it was a natural thing that just started to happen. They didn't have to go to a class on how to love each other. There wasn't a five course discipleship program. Do you realize how much we have changed how the Holy Spirit works? Again, I'm not against classes and Bible studies and different things. But if you think you're going to become a better Christian by taking this certificate and this certificate, you totally missed it. You totally missed it. When Jesus taught his disciples, he just lived life with them and he used teachable moments. And that's how Holy Spirit who lives within us. It's Jesus. Remember, he's going to be doing the same with you and I. He's not going to wake you up and say, "Okay, hey, it's time for your class. One day in Luke chapter 11, the Bible says that Jesus got up and he was spending time in prayer. And after his time in prayer, the disciples came to him and said, hey, teach us to pray. And Jesus took that teachable moment to begin to teach them about the Father and how he is and how, he view, how we should look at prayer and how his heart is for us. He didn't get up that morning and say, everybody gather together. We're now in our second year of three year program on discipleship. And today's lesson is on prayer. Get your notebooks out. No, he walked with them. He lived with them and he taught them as he went. And that's how the Holy Spirit's going to be teaching us. Does it do us good to spend time in the Word daily? Yes. Will it hurt us to have a discipleship program? No. But don't think you're going to get there once you finish the course. Be ready for when the Holy Spirit who lives within you is going to take a situation that you're in and it be a teachable moment. As we were just talking about tonight beforehand, there are things that he's going to feed you That you don't need right now, but down the road you're going to realize why he had you read that. And you're going to see how he puts that all together. That's the Holy Spirit doing his work. Can he do it? Will he do it? I hope your answer is yes to that as well. So, they were being taught by God. Yet, how were they living out this love toward one another? Let me write it. If you want to write it down the way I'm putting it here or whatever, listen. By living life together and sharing with each other to meet physical needs as well as spiritual. That's how they were to love each other, and that's how they were loving each other. They were living their life together, and they shared with each other to meet physical needs as well as spiritual. Go to 1 Thessalonians back again. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 7. He says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Well, how did they become an example? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 2. We, gave thanks to, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says you became imitators. You became imitators and an example to all the believers in Macedonia. Go to First Thessalonians chapter 2, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, "We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became what? imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now hang on for a second. These believers that had come to Christ in Thessalonica, had they ever met the believers in Judea? Had they, come, had, had they, had they watched a video course on how to be a good Christian from the believers in Judea? Then how did they become imitators of the believers in Judea when they had never met them? Oh, because the same Holy Spirit that came to indwell the believers in Judea had now come to bl- live in them. And the same way that the early church started acting toward each other in the, in the Judea is how they, the Holy Spirit had them act toward each other naturally. That's going to be a very important part of where we're going next. How they, they started living it out naturally without it being forced. So let's go back and take a look at the early church in Judea. Go to Acts chapter 2. And look at verses 42 through 47. Peter's just finished preaching at Pentecost. 3,000 are added to their number. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they, these are the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now I want to point out a couple of things, and then we're going to go over to chapter 4 of Acts and see how this continues. But when they got saved, the Holy Spirit came to indwell them there at Pentecost. Immediately, without a class, they just all of a sudden wanted to take care of each other. They, oh, by the way, went through a lot of persecution because of their faith in Jesus now. Many of them were kicked out of the synagogue, lost family relationships, lost their possessions. They lost their homes, a lot of them. They lost their family uh, families as well. Let me say this to you, but they instantly were just wanting to make sure that everybody else was taken care of in the church. And they loved each other and they shared what they had. And if some people had some things that they could sell to be able to meet some needs, they did it. They weren't living for this world anymore. They were living for the next and they just had a love for each other that was natural, supernatural. Why? Because the same God that came into dwell them now also we saw came into and dwell the Thessalonians, and that's what it looked like with them as well. In persecution and suffering because of their faith, they just their concern was how can I help the people around me in the church? I want to bless them. I want to spend time with them, and I want to share my stuff with them. Now, I also want to point out, they devoted themselves to four things. Look closely at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the word of God. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, and that's the Lord's Supper, actually, in this context, and praying. Did you catch that? Does anybody notice something that we've been taught to focus on that's not listed here? No? Evangelism. Did you notice that? Evangelism isn't one of the things they focused on. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. Don't misunderstand. Evangelism, I think, is going to be a natural outflow of your relationship with the Lord. But when we in the church make evangelism the main focus, go tell, go tell, go tell. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, not should, Not ought to, but we actually are to be living our lives in such a way that we are spending our time with the Lord, allowing him to do a work in our heart. And when we just focus on loving each other, devoting ourselves to the word of God, to each other, meeting each other's needs, I have found this to be something we've experienced in the churches we've been a part of. When we stopped focusing on evangelism and focused on just loving each other, God started sending people left and right who wanted to know, how can we be a part of this? What's different about you guys? When I was pastor in Chicago, we used to have the visitation program every Monday night. And it was a guilt thing. Monday night's visitation night. And you all need to be at church visitation. And you show up Monday night, and we're going to give you everybody a card. And you're going to take these names, and you're going to go out and knock on their doors and invite them to our church. And I started to learn as a young pastor that when the Holy Spirit was making me uncomfortable with something, he was trying to speak to me. I used to think it was just guilt. You know, because I shouldn't I should be working harder. But as I grew in my walk with the Lord, I started to recognize the difference between Satan trying to mess with me and guilt and the Holy Spirit saying, is this really of me? And so I got together with some of our leadership and I said, I'm not saying we shouldn't visit. I'm not saying we shouldn't reach out, but I'm, I'm not for this. It's mandatory every Monday night that we do this organized thing. I've even told churches now, why do your deacons have a meeting every month? Why do you have to have deacons, scheduled deacons meeting? Why don't you just meet when you need to? If something comes up, we live with Twitter and and email and cell phones and texting. Why do you, because as a pastor, I too was like, oh, it's deacons meeting this, this week, you know, and it was mandatory. And we try to organize things and when we organize, we kill it and it loses the power of the Holy Spirit. So I got up one Sunday at the church and I said, we're gonna do something a little different. We're canceling our visitation program, but we're going to visit now in the way that the Holy Spirit leads each of us. So here's how we're going to do it. We would like to see you have a heart for the people around you, but let God show you how he's gifted you and how he can use you. Some of you are really good at sending little cards or notes and you like to write a little something. Hey, you can contact the church office and get some names of people that have visited and their addresses and you can send them a note. Others, you like to visit. We've got no problem with that. You can call and get the address, and whenever, just make a phone call and set an appointment. Say, hey, can we come see you? And if they would like you to come, you go visit them. And if you want to do that, go ahead. I had one couple come to us, and they said, they said Pastor, they said, uh, um, we would like to just take a visiting family out to lunch every Sunday. I said, man, do it. So they did. They came every Sunday looking for someone that was new, and they'd run up to them, and they'd say, we're so glad that you're here. Do you have lunch plans today? We'd love to take you and all your kids out to lunch. Where would you like to go? And they would do that every Sunday. Many's the time I thought, I'm going to act like a visitor. So he'd take me to lunch. We had people start doing it and however God gifted them. And this is documented. My wife will tell you this is not exaggeration. We started averaging 20 visitors a Sunday. You know why? Because we focused on just loving each other. And God said, I'm going to send the people that I'm working on. Remember, Jesus said, I'll build my church. Folks, you want to be a part of what God's doing? Stop trying to do stuff for God and just focus on what he's taught you and what he's trying to let you do and focus on the word of God, focus on fellowship, focus on prayer, focus on the whole purpose of why we're together, which Lord's Supper reminds us of that. And when you just enjoy loving each other, other people are going to go, hey, I heard about what's going on. I'd like to be a part of that Bible study. You guys really enjoy each other. You are not even all go to the same church. You're all from seven, 12 different churches. And God begins to do a work. And it's not forced. It's not forced. Go to Acts chapter 4. Look at verses 32 through 35. And now, they're growing. The numbers are growing. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the Holy Spirit, Uh, Power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need that interesting. They just had a love for each other that was supernatural where they wanted to share their stuff. Well, Where is the Thessalonian church again? In the area of what? Starts with them. Macedonia. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, now, in writing to the church in Corinth, is using the Macedonians, the Thessalonians as well, the Macedonian churches as an example of a giving heart that is willing to share with others. But listen closely. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Look closely what he said. He said the Macedonian believers were being persecuted and they were poor. Yet they begged us for the opportunity to give some of their money to the believers in Jerusalem who had needs, who had lost all their stuff. They now were a part of the church, and they had a heart for those people on the other side of the, uh, uh, of the land, if you will, and across the sea, who were going through suffering like they were, and they were like, hey, I understand, Paul, you're taking in a love offering for them. Can we give toward it? There was no, hey, guys, I'm taking up a love offering, and I would like to everybody to at least put something in. No, that's why in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, look, Each one should decide in their own heart what they want to give because God loves a cheerful giver and it should never be under compulsion. Let me say something to you, folks. If you're doing the work of God or work for God, but it's under compulsion because it's your duty and your obligation, you're getting no reward. Because God only rewards those who do it out of the joy of their heart, out of the, well, Great grace was upon them all. You've got to learn how to move from doing the things you ought to do to allowing Jesus to show you who he is, and then it naturally becomes what you love to do. The difference between ought to do and love to do. Uh, a preacher years and years ago, Fred Luther, preached a sermon entitled Changing Our Got-To's to Get-To's. I got to go to church or I get to go to church. I got to whatever versus I get to. And if you're doing it because it's the right thing, but it's not because you want to, there's something wrong. And do you remember how Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? He says, you're doing all the right stuff. You've tested those who claim to be apostles. You've proved them false. You've worked hard. You haven't grown weary. Haven't denied my name. I got a problem. You've left your first love. Realize the height from which you've fallen. And folks, I have learned in my own walk with the Lord, I can be faithful to do the right thing, but it not being done by the Holy Spirit. And now sometimes God's had to slip me back down and say, I want you to get to the point where you want to. Well, to be honest with you, Lord, I don't want to, but I know it's the thing I'm supposed to do. He goes, but I want you to get to where you want to. Lord, I know that, but I just, in my flesh, I really don't want to. He goes, then... Take a break from it. And then as I spent time with him, all of a sudden, something started to happen to where I now wanted to do those things. I was pastor of this church years and years ago, and I don't recommend this for everybody. But this is what God had me do. I was studying and preparing messages and teaching. But I also felt like spending time in the word was a duty. I felt guilty if I didn't spend time in the Word. I actually was raised under a pastor in New Orleans who mentored me, and he had a radio program, and his radio program started every day with this. Have you read your Bible today? Have you shared your faith today? That was what he did in every radio program. That's how it started. Have you read your Bible today? Have you shared your faith today? And I was taught to do the right thing, but I was never taught to allow Jesus to teach me how to love. And how to do the right thing and have it be natural. And so I really felt guilty if I had a day where I didn't read the word of God. And so God spoke to me one day and he said something crazy. He said, I don't want you to read the Bible for two weeks. I'm like, Lord, I have to. I'm, I'm a preacher. I've got sermons. I've, he goes, I don't want you to read it for any other reason besides your set and study for your sermon. Don't read it besides that. Lord, I'm going to be in trouble with you because I'm supposed to read it every day. Have you ever been taught every day we're supposed to read the Bible every day? David said, your law I meditate on day and night. And we turned that into, remember, David's heart was, I want to. I love your word. I want to feed on it day and night. And we turned it into, see what David did? Now you have to read it every day and you have to do it in the morning. You ever heard that kind of teaching? You got to start your day with it and we turned it into a law. And by the way, you know the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the law fuels sin. When the law said don't, now all of a sudden you you want to. The law says do, and now all of a sudden you don't. God said, I don't want you to read it for two weeks. And something crazy started happening. During those two weeks, when I thought I was gonna be in trouble with God, because I had been taught God won't bless you if you're not spending time in the word every day, he was blessing in ways that I knew were him. I'm like, Lord, this doesn't match up with my theology. And then something even greater happened. By the end of the first week into the second week, I couldn't obey him anymore. You know why? I wanted to read his word. I I was hungry for it. It was no longer, well, I'm going to wait to do the two weeks. I couldn't get to the end of the two weeks. And I even said, Lord, I'm sorry, but... I want to read it now. (laughs) I'm hungry for it now. And he said, good, then my purpose was accomplished. He changed my heart from the got to to the get to. Do I read it every day? No. But kind of. Because you know what? Even when I'm not sitting down and looking at it and marking up my Bible, I'm meditating on his word all the time. It's my food. I love it. And I pray that you'll not only believe that he can get you there, but that he what? He will. He will. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He says something else very interesting in verses 11 and 12. He's just finished saying, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not in some of the verses we just read. But the early church, some people lost their, their, their livelihoods. They lost their jobs. They lost their income. They lost all that. And the, the rest of the church's attitude was they wanted to share and make sure they were taken care of. But they're also, when you read that, there's going to be those who say, that sounds like Communism. It isn't communism, because if you go to Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and gave it, when they lied about the fact that they said it was the whole amount when they had kept some for themselves, Peter says you were okay to do with it whatever you wanted. Wasn't it yours to do with? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with it however you want? In other words, there, it wasn't communism where everybody had to share but some people people wanted to but when there are going to be people that are naturally wanting to share there's going to become naturally people who want to be the receivers all the time and we've unfortunately and i mean this unfortunately in over the years we've made it that the church it's the church's responsibility to pay the light bill of all the people in the world that have trouble with their no if you look closely at the scriptures The Bible actually talks about the fact that the church took care of who? The saints, the believers. If you look at individuals taking care of people outside the church, they took care of them out of their own pocket. The Good Samaritan didn't take this man who had been beaten and robbed and say, hey, just go to this church down the street, they'll take care of you. He actually pulled out of his own pocket to meet his need. We are to do good to those outside the church, but especially to the household of faith. And actually, the giving and the sharing was within the local congregation. And there were widows who had their needs to be needed to be met daily and all this. And there was a daily distribution of the food and they were taking care of each other. And there started to be some people that said, I kind of like this. I don't have to go get a job. I can just be a part of this little commune of believers and they're going to make sure I have food. And Paul's teaching that Jesus' return could be at any moment. So, uh, I don't need to be hard and get a job because I can just live off of this until Jesus comes. And Paul realized there started to be a little problem there in the flesh of some people. And he says, Oh no, 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 no. Don't, I'm not saying don't work. Go keep a finger here and go back with me to 2 Thessalonians, but 2nd Thessalonians this time, but go to chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3 and look at verses 6 through 15. It says now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you it was not because we don't have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For, if we, hear that some of, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There was a problem that started to erupt when the church started to take care of each other, where people thought, well, I'll just let the church take care of me. And by the way, having met a pastor in different parts of the country, uh, there are people in these neighborhoods that know they can just go church to church to church, and that's how they live. The churches are supposed to pay their bills, give them food, pay for their gas, whatever. And that's why I love how a lot of churches in this area have all started to partner together. And they actually uh, work with this one ministry that's called Love, Inc., where actually the churches will send these people to Love, Inc. because they've got a, a listing of all the names and all the people. And they will help them find jobs and different things like that. And if there are real needs, they'll meet them. But instead of this person hitting up the Methodist church today, and then Tuesday they'll hit up the Baptist church, and then Wednesday they'll hit up the Presbyterian church, The churches are starting to partner together to say, look, let's weed out the real needs from the phony needs. And let's do that where they all come to the same place. And that way, if the same person keeps showing up, we'll recognize it. But at the same time, he said to them, I want you to live quietly, mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and what? Be dependent on no one. Now, does that mean you shouldn't let anybody meet your need? No, but you should not be dependent on that. God will supply our needs and he uses brothers and sisters all the time. But if you sit back and expect that, that's a problem. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 28. In Ephesians chapter four verse twenty-eight. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, "Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let them la- let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need." Do you see it? It isn't just that we shouldn't be dependent on everybody to take care of us. We should be actually working ourselves so that we can have something to share with those people who have real needs. And that's why when Paul, if you were to study 1 Timothy, was given the instructions about the widows and the daily distribution of the food, he set up requirements for who was a real widow and really in need and who should have been taken care of by their family first and all this stuff because there were people that actually shouldn't have been on the list of widows who were just kind of living off the dole of the church. And there are going to be problems like that. Does that mean that we now all of a sudden organize it to the point that we kill it? No. But at the same time, understand there's a difference between Meaning every need, because you think it's a need, and knowing whether or not the Holy Spirit's telling this is a real need. And boy, that's why you've got to let the Holy Spirit speak to you when you come up to all the street corners now, don't you? Have you noticed they're in a the street corner you can find anywhere now, hardly, without someone there with a sign? And how are you going to know which ones are for real and which ones are fain, uh, faking it or they're living off of that. Which, how are you going to know which one? You know, I found out when I was in New Orleans, there are some people that actually, they work for a company. It's crazy. But there are companies that will dress people up like this because they make a lot of money. I was at this one corner years ago. This is 30 years ago. as associate pastor of a church in New Orleans. We were a big church. We had a food pantry. We had a clothes closet. We had showers. 2,000 people on a Sunday morning. And I saw this guy had a sign said, we'll work for food. So I pulled off, got out of the traffic flow and pulled off to the side, got out of my car and I introduced myself. And I said, look, I'm an associate pastor of a church just down the street, literally two blocks down the road. We have food, we have clothes, we got showers and you, you want food? And we can even find you some work. And the guy goes, get out of here, man. I go, why? He goes, I've been waiting for this corner. I have been waiting for this corner. This is the one of the best corners. I make $400 a day. I'm not giving this up. So did we now just never give anybody any money? Or do we let the Holy Spirit show us? And again, there's a big difference between doing the right thing, because it's the right thing, and doing what the Holy Spirit is showing you to do because you want to. Are there some people that I've given money to that... Um, have gone off and blown it on alcohol? Probably. But you know what? Everybody wants to quickly say, well, then don't ever give cash. Now be careful. Once you start living by your policies, you stop learning to live by the Holy Spirit. What if the Holy Spirit wanted me to give that person cash so that that person would go and spend it on the alcohol, and then the Holy Spirit could use that to convict them as they went and thought, This wonderful, nice person just gave me this money, and I just spent it on alcohol, and that's what brings them to their senses. You don't know how God's going to do it. That's why you got to mind your own affairs and stop telling everybody else how they should be at the corner with the people. Well, I, Jim, I have packed lunches in my car all the time, and whenever I see someone, I pull out my bag. That's what everybody needs to be doing. Mm Mm-mm. Man, if God's having you do that, you do it because he's got his reasons and his purposes and he's going to organize and schedule where he wants you to be. But do what God's asked you to do and mind your own affairs. We all want to be God and tell everybody else how to live their lives. You know what? I think we're learning that the Holy Spirit will teach each of us everything, will over time bring us to an understanding of the truth. And I think all we're supposed to do is just love each other. Love each other. That's why John writes to the church in 1 John. He says, I write to you, children. I write to you, young men. I write to you, fathers. We're all in different levels of growth in our walk with the Lord. And just let him teach you. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. He now jumps to a different subject, but it's kind of tied to it, as you're going to see tonight and the rest of the weeks as we dive into this. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to be able to spend too much time here. We only got 15 minutes left in our study, but we're going to start diving into these verses. We're going to spend our whole time. We get together in two weeks again. We're going to spend the rest of our whole time breaking this passage down. But for tonight, let's just begin. Paul has been mentioning and referencing Jesus' return, but now he teaches on it in more detail. But before we can unpack these verses, it's obvious from Paul's writing that the Thessalonian believers had concerns about Jesus' coming, that they must have shared with Timothy. Remember, this is letters coming because Timothy's just come back and reported to Paul from his visit to go check on them. There must have been some concerns that the Thessalonian church had that they shared with Timothy about some things Paul had said earlier that didn't make sense. So there's obviously a foundation of teaching here about Jesus' coming that Paul had laid out in his first visit. that will help us interpret what Paul is saying here. So let's take a little time to look at the foundation of what Paul must have already said in order for them to be asking these questions. Paul had taught them about Jesus' return to the earth to come get them. Remember, we looked at that last week. Remember how I showed you in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 about how, look, wait for Jesus who comes to spare from the wrath to come. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.19. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 again, where he said, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his what? That is coming. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. They may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And, and then and he goes on in um, verse 15. We declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, till the what? Coming of the Lord. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. He says here again. He says, see that. Go to chapter. Sorry. Chapter. 3, verse 13, I said three thirteen and read 4, sorry, three thirteen. that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So Paul had obviously taught them about the coming of Jesus Christ. But Paul also didn't just teach the Thessalonians about the coming of the Lord. He had also taught in almost every place about the coming of the Lord. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Jump over to a second, sorry, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 13. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13, for by the for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, So you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I- I- I'm going show you a couple more. Go to Romans chapter 8. Paul, wherever he went, taught about the return of Jesus and the fact that our bodies are going to be changed. Uh, we're going to get into that more next time we gather together. But look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, Paul said this. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So here Paul again is saying, look, the suffering we're going through isn't even worth compared to the glory to be revealed. Creation itself is waiting to be set free from the curse that it's under. And not only the creation, but we who have the Holy Spirit within us grown inwardly, waiting to get out of these bodies, the revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. And we're to be looking for that. Paul taught everywhere he went that they were to be given their lives and faith to Jesus Christ, trusting him for their salvation. Now, when that happens, the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell you. And when he comes to indwell you, there's going to be a natural love for each other. There's going to be a a knowledge of God that's going to grow and grow. And also we're to be looking for Jesus, waiting for Jesus, watching for Jesus. He could come at any moment. That's why the early church would greet each other, Maranatha, until the Lord comes. They were looking for it. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4 said, and we who are alive will be caught up. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said, and we're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed. He was teaching them that it was going to happen in their lifetime, possibly, and to be ready at any moment, because the next thing on the agenda, before the tribulation period, before the time of Jacob's trouble, before the day of the Lord, all these things we're going to get into in our study when we gather back together, before all that stuff happens is going to be this gathering of Jesus' bride as he comes and takes his bride to go be with him in the clouds. So they had been taught this. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. and give you one more. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I'll give you one more. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. I know you're begging me for another one. I'm having fun meditating on this one. I've never looked at this one, and I'm going to dive into it in a lot more detail. But in Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. is interesting? He's coming again to gather those who are waiting for him. And we're to be watching for him. So since Jesus was going to come and get his church before the coming time of wrath on the earth, known as the Day of the Lord, the Thessalonians were taught to be ready for Jesus' return at any time. And very possibly in their lifetime. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. They had a problem. They must have been asking Timothy, um, Paul taught like Jesus was coming soon and we are to be ready and we're to, to take care of each other. But people are dying. And you said Jesus was going to come and he's going to gather up all of us and take us to be with him. But what about the Christians that died between when Paul taught this and when Jesus hadn't come yet? Are they going to miss that awesome day? That's going to be an amazing day. We're all looking for the return of Jesus when he's going to come and gather us. But we got brothers and sisters in Christ and parents and loved ones who have come to faith in Jesus and, and they died. Are they going to miss out on that awesome day? Oh, no. Paul says, listen to verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. When we come back together next time, I'm going to walk you through a very detailed study. I've already written it, but I'm, not going, to, I'm going to save it for next week or next time we get together, because I just, I don't want to rush it, but I'm going to walk you through a very detailed study of this term, sleep. It's describing death. And when it talks about Christians being asleep, it means that they're dead physically, but they're still alive. You ever notice somebody that's asleep? They look dead, don't they? I mean, she's giving me the look. I got a picture of Becky where she fell asleep somewhere, and buddy, it's one of my favorite pictures, and she hates it. She looks like she died in this chair and we're in public we're in a public setting we're at Disney Springs and we were tired and I'm telling you if you want to see it you got to come see me a, and I'll I, but I, I'm going to make a little money that buy her a really nice gift for sharing this so if you want to see the picture you got to give me cash but here's the deal she's in this chair like this I took the picture and sent it to the kids you, look at your mom she just died at Disney you know kind of a deal she was still alive but she looked dead and i'm going to show you from scriptures in many places that the bible talks about the fact that those who are christians even their body though their bodies are dead they're still alive and he just calls them asleep asleep and i can't wait to show you that study when we get together next week but look at what he says he says in verse 14 since we believe that jesus died and rose again Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When this day comes where Jesus raptures his church, he's going to come with the people that are already with him. By the way, that's important. As we get into next time we gather together, we're going to talk about the fact that some people teach soul sleep, that when Christians die, their soul goes to sleep and they don't wake up until. No, I'm going to show you that when you die, absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Paul said, I, I look forward to uh, getting out of this body and go be with Christ, which is better by far. The Bible's real clear that when you die, You go to be with Jesus right away, and Jesus is going to bring all those people that have died in him and are asleep in him. He's going to bring them with him when he comes to gather us. Actually, go with me to John 14. Jesus actually began to teach on this. They didn't fully understand it at the time. In John chapter 14, look at verses 1 through 3. And look at the context of what he's saying here. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. They already exist. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself That where I am, you may be also. Look closely at what he says. In my father's house already are many rooms. There's lots of room for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be with me where I am. What's he talking about? He's talking about the rapture, folks. I'm going to show you next time we get together that the whole idea of the rapture is a mystery, something that hadn't been fully revealed in the past, but God was revealing it to his apostles and the prophets in the church age. And Paul, I'm going to show you how Paul starts to lay this out. The whole idea of Jesus coming and gathering his bride and taking his bride to go be with him before that great and awesome day of the Lord, before the day of the Lord, before the time of Jacob's trouble, before that hour of trial that's going to come on the earth. And that's why we're to encourage each other for this, with this. Folks, those of us who believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church aren't escapists. We're Bible-believing people who take the word of God and the whole of God, and he's told you, encourage each other. He's going to come and take us to be with him. Does that mean we won't suffer persecution or suffering? No, we've been reading about how the Thessalonian church did, the Judean church did, Christians around the world still are because of their faith. And as things continue to degrade in America, as the Bible kind of hints they would, we have to understand that we too may experience more suffering and persecution because of our faith. But there's a difference between you will experience tribulation because of your faith and the tribulation period or that time set aside, that last seven of the Daniel 9, 20 through 27 in the 77s. That last seven-year period set aside for Israel in the world where God is going to judge the world in sin. That's not for us. Let me encourage you with this. And that's why a lot of preachers recently have been saying the rapture is not only going to be a time we get to go see Jesus, it's going to be a reunion. Think about the reunion that's going to be happening. As those loved ones who have already gone to be with him are going to come with him. And we're going to go meet them in the air. That's going to be awesome, isn't it? That's going to be amazing. I can't wait for that day. In all my years of being a pastor and doing funerals and doing the graveside services, just about every single time, unless the Lord led me to do something different, I will preach from this passage about how this gravesite is not a cemetery, but it's resurrection ground. Because he goes on and says that their bodies are going to come up out of the ground. They're going to come with him, but their body's going to come out of the ground. And we who are alive are going to be caught up and go be with him. The gravesite that we visit sometimes and go and bring flowers, it's not a place of death. It's a place of life and resurrection for those of us who are in Christ. Encourage each other with these words. Again, can't wait to dive into it in a lot more detail, but that'll be in two weeks. Till then, have a great Thanksgiving. I love you. Thanks for coming.